the armistice ending World War I was signed 99 years ago yesterday on 11 November 1918. However, it did not officially end that war. The official end came a year later on 28 June 1919 with the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. Since the U.S. never signed the Treaty of Versailles, for us at least, the 11 November armistice really does mark that war's end. Armistice Day originally focused on the veterans of World War I, but the day was always meant to honor all veterans of foreign wars who risked their lives to secure the freedoms we all expect and enjoy. In 1926, Congress called for the holiday to be a day of prayer and fasting. Armistice, Armistice Day has since become known as Veterans Day. It became a permanent official holiday in 1938. Several years ago, Sally and I took our son to Omaha Beach in Normandy, site of some of the D-Day landings. We eventually climbed to the top of the ridge overlooking the beach, and suddenly there were 10,000 crosses perfectly aligned in rows with some stars of David mingled in. It was unbelievably beautiful and peacefully silent. I'm sure a stunning contrast to the rifle, machine gun, and mortar fire, the artillery fire, the naval gunfire, mines exploding, and the screams of the wounded and dying on both sides. For just a moment, let us pause to thank all our military personnel in all our country's conflicts and wars for all they did to make the world a safer, better place. And if you are of a mind to join me in dedicating yourself to building a world of justice and lasting peace in their honor. Amen. The point of today's gospel is, of course, Jesus' encouragement of the people to be prepared for the unknown but sudden arrival 
of the Messiah. The Christian narrative announces that such an event occurred already with the appearance of Jesus. But there is also a future coming of the Messiah that will mark the advent of the end time. The end of time of history is a key feature of Christian theology because the end time is what renders all that precedes it meaningful. We can't understand from our place in the midst of history what life is all about, much less the meaning of our own life. But we are promised that at the end, good will triumph over evil, death, illness, despair. The scales will fall from our eyes as all that obstructs and obscures the divine plan of salvation will give way to human understanding at last. The first century church robustly believed in ultimate goodness in the end. And many contemporary Christians believe in this as well. We live in the meantime, an interim of unknown duration where being alert, being ready, is part of the interior of a person, one's private life, lived Christianly in openness to the world and to the goodness breaking into it. Interiority is concerned with the hopes, fears, aspirations, motivations, readiness, all that makes a person tick as one faces an unknown future, but a future ultimately, we say in faith, of good, of God. I think I can illustrate the interiority of people and how it directs us with a true story. Years ago, I observed a hospital chaplain trying to explain to a new group of medical school graduates, now interns and residents, what the chaplaincy offered. At some moment, he was interrupted by a, a young physician who said, Chaplain, we appreciate your helping us understand your program, but we are all of us apprehensive about becoming responsible for actual patients now. And so our minds honestly, are elsewhere. Fair enough. And the chaplain and I later agreed that what made those conscientious new doctors so anxious 
came from the deepest parts of their being, their interior, where their humanity, their spiritual core, you might say, gets worked out. The memory of the conscientious young interns came rushing back when Sally and I were recently giving lectures and meeting with faculty and graduate students at a Christian university in Oslo. The people we met apparently studied and taught at this place because it was a Christian school. We did not detect any religious triumphalism, posturing, or smugness. We did, however, feel a current of sincere welcome, appreciation, support, respect for others, a quality of conscientiousness, and the like. At basic human levels, the people there, like the young doctors, were committed to being competent and caring. You could see it and you could feel it. We have found this elsewhere also, of course, including in African villages, and it's what we encounter in St. John's Church. This is Christianity without affectation, and it is the best possible medicine for a world going mad. I believe that most churches across the planet try their best to help their people to be conscientious, caring, decent, and good. Doing this is not simple, and certainly succeeding with it is not guaranteed. No one has discovered how to do it perfectly. But people coming together, telling and retelling the biblical stories, praying, communing with the divine and one another, welcoming strangers, serving the community and wider world, and worshiping an unseen God, somehow with the divine grace, helps to shape our interiors, helps to make goodness happen. I hope that we can see how important this business of constructing generous and caring lives is in our broken world. Such lives are a foretaste of the ultimate goodness that is to come at the end of time. St. John's Church people do express lives of goodness, generosity, and caring. This is a special place, and I hope all of us can accept the importance of supporting it financially 
in this stewardship season. This church, St. John's, is worth more than we can imagine.